We're in a summer series, a sermon series entitled 12 Words of Hope for the World. And today, on this 4th of July week, we come to the word freedom. Paul writes in Galatians 5.1, and I want to add verse 13 to that text, uh, the following. For freedom Christ has set us free. Stand firm, therefore, and do not submit again to a yoke of slavery. For you were called to freedom, brothers and sisters. Only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for self-indulgence. But through love become slaves to one another. The word of the Lord. Those are some powerful words. For freedom, Paul writes, for freedom Christ has set us free. And we celebrate the freedom of our nation on this 4th of July. Yesterday, Catherine and I and some friends from Charleston, we went to see the American Revolution Museum in Yorktown. I don't know if you've been there, but it is well worth the trip. It just opened, and it is absolutely magnificent. It's an incredible lesson in history about our country. Thomas Jefferson penned the words... We, therefore, the representatives of the United States of America in general Congress assembled, appealing to the supreme judge of the world for the rectitude of our intentions, do in the name and by the authority of the good people of these colonies, solemnly publish and declare that these united colonies are and of right ought to be free and independent states, that they are absolved from all allegiance to the British crown. Wow. Them is some fighting words. How dare we seek independence from Britain when they were the ones who paid for these colonies and they were the ones who took the risk to develop these colonies, how dare we proclaim our independence from the British Empire? This was awesome. This was venture capital for Britain. And I'm sure they felt that we were seeking to rob them of what was rightfully theirs. If I was British, I think I would have felt that way. And yet, when you read the Declaration of Independence, which I would encourage you to do on this 4th of July, from stem to stern, you will see the argument that we felt robbed of our liberties. Thousands of people on both sides of this issue died in pursuit of this freedom. Now, Paul knew nothing about America, of course, when he wrote his letter to the Galatians. Galatians has been called the Magna Carta 
of Christianity. It may be one of Paul's first letters he ever wrote to his first missionary churches that he established. So if that's the case, this would be, if not the oldest document in your New Testament, perhaps one of the oldest documents. Older than Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, older than the other letters. This might be the first written document of the New Testament, the letter to Galatians. And when he writes this letter, Christianity is brand new in the world. There are no traditions. Nobody understands what this thing is. And so like Thomas Jefferson, Paul ends up writing some fighting words in the letter to Galatians. Some letters of, a letter of independence, a magna carta. He was seeking independence from legalistic Judaism. Now here's what he claimed. Paul, being a Jewish lawyer, which means he, his law was in the Torah, the, five, the first five books of the Old Testament. So he wasn't just a lawyer like a divorce lawyer. He was a biblical lawyer. Converted to Christianity through his experience with Christ. So he knows the law. But he claimed that all people, all people, Jews and Gentiles, could come to Christ through faith alone. Now that doesn't sound like too radical to you. Um, certainly doesn't sound as radical as Thomas Jefferson pinning independence from the British Empire. That's radical. This sounds uh, kind of mediocre. But it wasn't. Judaism was the official religion of the Messiah. The Messiah was coming to Israel. And part of what the expectation was, was that the Messiah would actually be a political figure. That, that in Judaism, the Messiah would come and establish Israel as the nation of the world. And Jerusalem, the capital of the world. And there would be one world government and one world religion. This is who the Messiah was supposed to be. So therefore you understand now why this Jesus, a son of a carpenter or a stonemason from the little podunk town of Nazareth, he ain't it, so to speak. He's not the big political figure they were looking for to return Israel to their rightful place where it was when David was king. But you certainly would have to be Jewish in order to receive the Messiah. Paul's out starting house churches and saying, you don't need to be Jewish. You can come to God through Jesus Christ, through faith in Christ. Man, this was radical stuff. How dare Paul suggest that a person can come to the God of Abraham and Sarah without first becoming Jewish, without circumcision for the males, and without adhering to the law? And so the question was, can Gentiles, who were non-Jewish people, can Gentiles simply profess faith in Christ for their salvation? And the Jews said no. All males must be circumcised. All families must adhere to the Jewish laws and practices in order to receive this Jesus whom you call to be 
the Messiah. Paul said, yes, you can come directly to God through Jesus Christ. And so once this was staked out in Galatians, the first letter to the first churches, bring in the troops. Because these were fighting words, and I'm telling you, in the New Testament, this continues to be a big argument. Now his argument was that if a person is in Christ, they don't need the law. They don't need the rules and they don't need the regulations. Why not? He's a lawyer. Why are you saying I'm free from the law if I'm in Christ? Because here's his argument. You are bound to Christ. And if you, like a train car, are attached to Christ, who is the engine, and that is bolted together, then you don't need laws and rules and regulations. Why? Because you are following him. He is the law. How can you get lost if you're following Jesus Christ was Paul's argument. His mind dwells in you. You are the temple of the Holy Spirit. All this was new stuff. And the Jews are going, what? (laughs) A human being is the temple of the Spirit of God? We are filthy with sin. How could God be dwelling within us? It's a good argument. If I was Jewish, I would have been mad. If I was British, I would have been mad. I get it. What Paul was proclaiming is impossible. You don't really need to be... This is like somebody saying this to us. To us, to we Presbyterians. Somebody comes in here and teaches this. You don't need to be baptized to be a Christian anymore. What? What? What are we going to do with the baptismal font that goes all the way back to 1812? (laughs) Not only that, but no longer do you Christians need to take communion. Well, what will we do with all the silver? Not only that, but you don't really need to go to church anymore. This is how radical Paul's teaching was to the Jewish ear. You're changing all the rules. Totally offensive. But he held on to this. And and he keeps driving. One does not work their way into God's favor. This is the core of the Protestant Reformation, by the way. One does not work their way up. I've been a good girl. I've been a good boy. I've tithed, I've come to church, I've served on the stewardship committee. You know, I sing in the choir. Sorry. You know, I've done all these things. And I've built my tower to the skies and certainly I now have the credit to step into the gates of heaven. And Paul says, no, no. Because the truth of the matter is you don't work your way into God's favor. God favors God's favor works its way into you through Christ. God came down, you don't go up. And in that incarnation, God opened the gates for all people for salvation. This is radical, radical stuff. This is the Magna Carta of Christianity. It's in the little letter of Galatians that you probably hadn't read in a hundred years. And there it is. You spend a lifetime, Paul would argue, 
working out your gratitude for what God has done for you in Christ. That is the Christian faith. That your life is now gratitude. Stewardship is a gratitude. Your giving is a gratitude. Your ministry is gratitude. You're not earning points. You're responding to the grace of God that's been poured out freely for you in Jesus Christ. So like Jefferson, Paul writes a letter. He finds out in these house churches that people have come behind him. Jewish people called Judaizers have come behind him. After he's established these little churches and they came in and said, what did Paul tell you? We don't need to be Jewish. And they said, that's wrong. You all have to become Jewish. The males have to be circumcised. All of you have to adhere to the law of the Torah. All of you have to observe Jewish practices and then accept the Messiah. And when Paul heard that these people were coming behind him in all of his little churches he was establishing in missionary trip one, two, and three, he went livid. He couldn't believe it. And he sat down like Jefferson and penned out a hot letter. Like the Declaration of Independence that states 10, 12, 15 things King George III had done that had caused this rebellion. Paul staked out why in Jesus Christ we are free. It's amazing how these are parallel processes. Well, like the museum we visited yesterday, which is, is just incredible. All this is good history, but so what? I mean, it's good history. You may have learned something this morning. But it's history, so what? Here's the so what. Consider the fact that you and I wouldn't be in this worship service this morning in a Christian church had Paul not fought this battle. You know why? Because you are the Gentiles. You are. That's amazing. The door was open for you, for me. We don't have to become Jewish before we become Christian. We come to Christ through faith. And the gates of salvation are opened even to us who do not have stake and claim into Abraham and Sarah, into the whole history of the covenant. And yet we do. Through Christ, we become heirs of Abraham. And this was a radical battle fought on your behalf. It makes this little teeny document in your New Testament very, very, very important. Now what this doesn't mean is that we have to be anti-Semitic. We're not. Which means, I mean, if some of the younger, younger ones here wonder, what does that mean? It means that we don't dislike Jewish people. We love all of God's people. Nor does it mean Jewish people don't have the right to be Jews or that they particularly have gotten it, gotten it wrong. That's for God to decide. We were called to God through Christ. That's how we answered the call. But what it does mean is that we have access to God through Jesus Christ. It means the life, the death, and the resurrection of Jesus was also for us, for us Gentiles, for freedom, Paul writes. Christ has set you 
Greek. Big words. But here's a little twist. You don't want to be free from Jesus Christ. You don't ever want to write a declaration of independence from Christ. Or fight a war to gain your individual freedoms from him. We are bound to him. Like that train car I was telling you about. And he is bound to us. We are free. Not from Christ. Here's the kicker. We are free in Christ. So for a Christian that means because we can do something. Does not mean we should do something. We are free to hate. You are. You're free to discriminate. You're free to pull your fences in and only take care of yourself. You're free to break your marriage vows. You're free to abuse your bodies, to cheat, to lie, to steal, and to harbor all kinds of private sins. But because you can do something does not mean you should do something. Whatever political freedom means this morning, whatever individual freedoms mean, it cannot mean a permissive society that is unethical and immoral. It can't mean that. Because we are constrained in our freedom because we freely choose to submit ourselves to Jesus Christ, who we call Lord, leader. Our freedom is in him, not from him. There are many people in bondage today as we eat our watermelon and have our hamburgers and hot dogs. There are people who are locked up. Literally, prison systems are bulging in the commonwealth and throughout the nation and throughout the world. There are people in bondage who want to be free from prejudice. They're tired of it. They happen to be a particular color. They walk into a room and they're treated a certain way. Who wouldn't be sick of that? They'd love to be free from that. There are people who want to be free from poverty. It's a rat hole. You can't get out of it. You're one car battery, a dead battery from losing your job when you're poor. There are people who want to be free from their addiction. And as hard as they try, it keeps coming back to them and locking them up over and over and over again. They want to be free from depression, from abuse, from low wages, from homelessness, from oppression, from bad marriages, and from all the other prisons that enslave us as a people, as a nation, and as citizens of the world. They want freedom. So the church has a word of hope today. The word is freedom. And we pray for the world on this 4th of July. That is our task. We are planted in this country, in America, as the church of Jesus Christ. We are an embassy, like we're from a foreign country. We're an embassy of the kingdom of God planted in this country for this country. And yet we do not belong only to this country. The church belongs to no one but to Christ himself in every nation throughout the world. But we're here and it is our task to pray for our leaders and for our uh, government, for our president. 
for the people who make policy decisions that affect the lives of our neighbors, their housing, their shelter, their food, their health care. These are issues, if you love your neighbor, you can't be detached from those issues. And so the church on this 4th of July prays for the world that the day may come when all of God's people may be truly free. For freedom, Christ has set us free, Paul wrote. Stand firm, therefore, and do not submit again to a yoke of slavery. In the name of the Father, the Son, <clears throat> excuse me, the Son and the Holy Spirit. Amen.